So 1 John 5, 13 through 15 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Alex. Well, good morning. Uh, If we have not met yet, my name is James. Uh, I'm one of the elders here this morning. I had the privilege to pray on behalf of the elders just now with um, Jay Will about this afternoon's worship service. Um, And I'm looking forward to being there. Uh, Have you guys ever heard this phrase, on a wing and a prayer? It's interesting because it's a phrase that has a very particular historical reference. It actually uh, comes from an event during World War II when an an American pilot of a B-17 called the Southern Comfort was flying back from a bombing run over Germany in a crippled plane. And uh, his name was Hugh Ashcroft, Jr. And uh, the pilot said to his crew, if any of you want to, please pray. And uh, the news reports came back uh, and called them the crew that, quote, prayed their plane back home. And that inspired a line in the 1942 film, The Flying Tigers. And John Wayne's character in that film says, she's coming in on one wing and a prayer. And so the phrase was started, this phrase that denotes a kind of uh, desperate act, a kind of a Hail Mary, a last-ditch effort. It sort of speaks to an underpreparedness in the face of a challenge. It often describes church planting. Uh, but it's, it is how many of us pray. It's how I think much of the world prays. I even have atheist friends who've said they've prayed and kind of and used the phrase on a wing and a prayer. You ever get that final exam if you went to college and you got that exam and as soon as the teacher put it on your table, on your desk, you look at it and you go, yeah, I'm not ready for this. All you have left is a wing and a prayer. <laughs> and so what John says here this morning is uh, that is not actually how Christians pray. It's how we, we often instinctually pray But it's not how Christians pray. Christians have a very particular, distinctive prayer life. And their prayer life, though they often feel desperate and often find themselves in desperate situations, do not pray as a kind of Hail Mary. Their prayer is marked by a unique confidence. And so on that note of praying in confidence, would you pray with me that we would hear from God this morning as He hears us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it instructs us that Your Spirit continues to guide us to know Your will, that we might pray and obey, that we might be comforted and encouraged. We pray, Lord, this morning that You would speak clearly to us and that we would know with confidence that You, in turn, hear us. Help me to speak clearly and to speak well on your behalf, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the very first point here, verse 13, that John notes, 
which has been called the thematic line of John's letter. Some call it the melodic theme or melodic line in which the rest of the letter resonates. It's the characteristic we know, but a very specific kind of knowledge. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the biblical doctrine of the assurance of salvation. I write that you might know, and anyone who believes in the Son of God can know this. This means assurance isn't something you come to know as you get more and more mature. The moment you come to Christ, you can have full assurance of salvation. But if you like, though the, qu the quantity doesn't change, the quality of our assurance changes. A depth is added over time as we abide in Christ, as we'll see. And so our confidence grows over time. And we need to be reminded of this. This is why John wrote the letter. It's not automatic. Sometimes we need to be assured of our assurance. And so we need to be assured and encouraged in our confidence, which is my hope this morning. Well, he goes on to say in verse 14, in light of this assurance of salvation, he describes how that assurance gets expressed. And he says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. This assurance yields this confidence towards him. Confidence is another word that John has used multiple times in this letter. He says, as we abide in him, we will have confidence for the day of Christ when he appears. We won't slink back in shame but face him in confidence. And then in chapter 4, we saw that as God's love is perfected in our own hearts, we have confidence for that day. Well, if we have confidence for that day, John reasons, we'll have confidence for today, to stand before him now. And he said that in chapter 3 when he says, if our hearts do not condemn us because we know who we are, we know we're forgiven, we have confidence before Him right now. And that's exactly what he says here in verse 14. We have confidence toward Him, specifically in our prayer life. It's what Job's buddy told him. Job's buddy was quite wrong in his premise that Job needed to repent of some deep, dark sin. But he says to Job, if you do repent, then... You will delight yourself in the Almighty and lift up your face to God. It's this notion of that confident presence with God. Full-faced interaction, interface with God. In fact, the Greek translation uses the same word John uses, confidence. You will lift up your face in confidence to God. You will make your prayer to Him and He will hear you. That is the nature of our confidence based on our assurance that we will be heard in all of our prayers. Uh, and so that's the, our second mate, and really the main point is God hears us when we pray to the Father uh, in Jesus. And this, of course, is modeled most perfectly, as we might expect, in Jesus himself. In John's Gospel, in chapter 11, uh, Jesus has been begged by Martha to come uh, heal her brother, and he delays. And when he finally makes it, Lazarus has been already in the tomb for four days. 
And so Jesus says, roll away the stone. And she's, Martha's like, well, I, uh, it's been a while. I'm not sure that's a good idea. And Jesus says, just believe. And then they obey Jesus' command. They roll away the stone. And Jesus lifts up his eyes. You know, when we pray, we bow our heads and close our eyes. That's appropriate too. In fact, one of the words that for worship in our Bibles literally means just to kneel down. There's something appropriate about humbling ourselves before God with a bowed head. But it's also appropriate to lift up our eyes to heaven sometimes. The Bible says we even lift our hands and pray, kind of expectantly receiving. We can face God face to face. We don't have to come ashamed. We come, as Paul says, with confidence and bold access. Or the author of Hebrews says, we can draw near to the throne of grace in confidence. All these are the same word. Why? Through Jesus, who himself has bold, unhindered access to the Father because he is the only begotten Son. And he says that. He says, I thank you, Father, that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. I did not send myself. I am not finally the son of Mary. I am, but not finally. I am finally the son of the Father, eternally generated. When you ask me where I'm from, I don't say Bethlehem. I say heaven. That is my source, my true identity. And so as the only begotten son, I am always heard by my Father. And I know that. I want them to believe it too and to know it. That's why the miracle took place, that they might believe. And, God, and Jesus declares with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. In John's dramatic language, the man who had died came out. The Father hears us in the exact same way that he hears his son. Because you and I, as believers in Christ Jesus, are in the Son. That's what Alex meant by wrapped in cosmic power. We are in the Son. And so look what Jesus says in John 14 to his disciples. What, he says, after saying, truly I say, whoever believes in me will do even greater things than the things I did. Really? Greater things than Lazarus? Yes, he says. But look what he says in verse 14. Or verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You know, in the name of Jesus is something we kind of tack on on the end of all of our prayers as Christians. And there's a good reason why we do that. I think we remind ourselves that the reason we have bold access to the throne of grace is because of Jesus. As he told Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am your access. And he says later to them, when he talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says, you haven't asked anything of me yet, but you will ask of, your fa of my Father. You won't need to ask me. You can go directly to the Father in my name. You will pray in my name, and you will be heard because it's in my name. But in my name is not a phrase we just tack on like a stamp on the envelope so it gets to its destination. 
Did you, did you say in the name at the end? You know, it's not an incantation, right? It's a reminder, but we can, we can treat it like a superstition. But it's not about the right combination of words. It's about, it's about being in Christ. And it's not automatic, nor is it guaranteed just because you slapped in the name of Jesus on the end of the prayer. In fact, to pray in the name of Christ is an active, ongoing obedience. It is to live in Christ, or as John likes to say, abide. Look on the screen uh, later in John 15. Uh, Jesus says this, If you abide in me, if you abide in my name, and my words abide in you. What does that mean? That means my teachings, my instructions live in you. Like you live them out. You're like walking in my path, in my instructions. If you are abiding in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So apparently whatever you're asking for has to do with the fruit we've been called to bear. But whatever you ask, whatever you wish. But how can we abide in him if we, if we, if, unless we know the will of God? And that's how John phrases it here in verse 14. This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will. It's uh, earlier in John's letter. In John chapter 3, John wrote this. If we, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So as we're living in his will, as we're obeying his will, as we're seeking his will, we're always heard, always answered. In fact, Jesus knew precisely that it was the Father's will to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's why he delayed two days when Martha came to him. It says he delayed because he loved Martha, which sounds like a contradiction. Hey, would you come heal my brother? Yeah, let me, let me give it a couple days. Because John, Jesus knew it was the Father's will that Lazarus not be healed, but die. So that... Jesus could raise him from the dead and be glorified. Glorify the Father and the Father honor the Son in the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus. But of course, Jesus had an intimate knowledge of the Father's will that was unprecedented and I don't think ever since has ever been repeated. As the, uh, as the only begotten Son, he, had, he enjoyed an unhindered and total intimacy with the Father. That we, uh, we, we approximate, right? We approach, but I don't know that anyone has ever fully realized in this life such a perfect fellowship. So how can we know the will of God? How can we then pray with the confidence of Jesus? Well, one thing is this. Jesus is not playing hide and seek with you. He wants you to know the will of the Father, and he's given you full access. Look what he tells the disciples here in the last discourse on his way to the cross. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants because servants don't know what the master's doing. They don't know the will of the Father. They don't need to know it. They just need to know enough to do the little bits they've been assigned to do. But Jesus says, you're not servants. 
You're bold-faced individuals who can walk into the master's house and say, what's the plan, man? With all respect. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I'm not hiding anything. I don't have any secrets up my sleeve. I've shown you all you need to know. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would last. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, This knowledge of God's will is not instant. It's not like, here you go, here's the book on it. There is this book, but even that doesn't mean we fully comprehend it from the start. We need to grow in our understanding. In fact, Jesus tells the disciples later in chapter 16, I have a lot more to tell you, but you can't bear it. But when the Spirit comes, the Helper, He will lead you into all truth. And He did. The apostles learned the mission. They learned the full implications of the gospel for, like, the nations. Like, it took them a while. They were slow at points to pick up on the significance of grace to the Gentiles. What does that mean? Like, they slowly learned. And they, they had plans for God's mission that were not realized. Paul had an itinerary. We're going to go hit Asia. And the Holy Spirit's like, nope. All right, well, we're going to go to Bithynia. Nope. You're going to Macedonia. Paul had his plans, but God directed his steps, right? And so we're the same way. We have limited knowledge. We learn God's will as we need to know it to do it. You know, like when you graduate from high school or college, you're like, God, just show me the next five years of my life. That'd be great. You know, he never answers that. He shows you what you need to know when you need to know it, right? To be obedient, always. And the apostles were no different. Sometimes their plans were frustrated, even their good plans. And guys, sometimes their prayers, their good prayers, were not answered. It's certainly not in the way that they wanted. Remember, Paul bore testimony to this. And he said, in order to to keep me from being conceited, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan to torment me. And I prayed, not once, not twice, but three times I pled with the Lord to take it away. The Lord didn't do it. So the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. To what end? My grace is sufficient to this end, he says. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now, if you would ask Paul, Paul, do you want the power of God perfected in you? He would say, yes, above all things. Okay, Paul, my power is perfected only in weakness. You know, my son, my only begotten, salvation was perfected in what Paul calls provocatively the weakness of God. The crucifixion of the son was how power got perfected for us. It's no different in our lives. We often want the ends. We long for the ends. Like, God, give me joy. God, give me life. Give me the fullness of your character. And God always says yes and amen. But it often takes us through a valley, through that J curve, right? Down into death before we go to resurrection power. That's why Paul would later say, I crave to know the sufferings of Christ. I want to share in them. Why are you a masochist, Paul? 
No, he says, so that I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. I know power is perfected in weakness. I know it in my own flesh. I wonder what loss, what agony, what thorn are you presently suffering that God is turning into a power perfected in weakness? Your prayers for the thorn to be removed are not wasted breath, but hopefully they are transformed into praise. The way Paul's prayers for its removal were turned into praise. In fact, Paul's very next line is, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ might rest on me. And so, what's happening in our prayer lives? It's not like a genie where you go and say, I would like this, please, and he gives it. In fact, Paul will often use the word agonize to describe his prayer life. That's not automatic. It's not a cosmic bellhop who jumps at our command. What is God doing? He's, as Alex said, aligning our hearts towards His. And as we pray our desires, and we rightly pray our desires, we find, one, what our desires are. There's nothing like prayer to become self-aware. You ever notice that? Like, man, I'm praying about this a lot. I must have a lot of anxiety about this or a lot of fear. Or this must be a really deep longing. Sometimes we're afraid to bring our longings to God. Sometimes there's a sense of shame about that longing. Maybe it's a false shame. I encourage you to bring that shame to God, that bring that desire to God nevertheless. To say, God, here's my longing, here's my desire. And what happens is in, in the light of his countenance, you gain not only self-awareness, you're changed. You're changed. That's why C.S. Lewis said prayer is not so much about changing God. It's about God changing us. We are transformed in that wrestling with God. And that's how we begin to discern God's will. It's a process. We don't automatically know God's will. We don't automatically have the the capability of discerning it. The author of Hebrews says, the mature by constant practice have trained themselves to discern good from evil. It is an ongoing work, a renewal of the mind that you might then test and know the perfect and good will of God. This is the process that you and I are in the middle of. God is doing what? He's transforming our affections. He's he's bringing us into a deeper abiding with the Son so that our heart's affections and our heart's cries begin to more and more mirror the heart of our Father. The psalmist saying, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But notice the first verse. Delight yourself in the Lord. As you love him and you love what he loves, he loves to give you the desires of your heart. The, the old bishop of Africa, North Africa, Augustine of Hippo said, love God and do what you want. Notice the first part, love God. And we could paraphrase the psalm that way. Love God and pray whatever you want. God hears you because your hearts are being molded in the very prayers themselves as well as the rest of our lives to look like the heart of our Father. Okay, well, that's great, James, but I'm not there yet. I don't know about you. I am not at the place where my heart is fully shaped and and, and fully reflective of the Father's heart. That I pray according to the, the will of God in every moment. I don't think I'm there yet. 
Anyone else there? How can I pray with confidence in the meantime while I'm on the way, while I'm being shaped to have the heart of God, while my desires are being purified, transformed, renewed, and deepened? The problem with our prayer lives isn't that we ask too much, it's we ask too little. Our prayers are puny compared to what God would have for us. So often God says no to a prayer now because he, he, he knows the much deeper desires beneath that prayer that he's longing to answer. And when he unearths it and shapes it, he will answer it in spades. Do you understand the desires God's put in your heart at creation and that he has renewed in you for your redemption will all be fulfilled? Not one of them will go unanswered. But we can pray now for what we do know of his will. The question is, do we? Like James says, um, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And he gives generously to all without finding fault. And he will give it. It's just, it's just a statement of fact. If you, do you lack wisdom? Ask God and he's going to give it. No questions asked. Just gives it. Always. He loves to give wisdom. He loves to give the fruit of the Spirit. A great prayer to pray is pray for joy. Pray for joy every day. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? God, give me joy. He will do it. And maybe it won't be an instantaneous transformation, but He will give you joy. He'll give you patience, kindness, faithfulness, love. He will give it. He loves giving that. He can't wait for you to ask so He can give it. Jesus, remember, go back to that verse of, of John 15. You did not choose me, Jesus said in verse 16. You did not choose me. Well, you know what that means? That means this didn't start with your desires. It started with mine. I desired you, and I chose you. And I appointed you to go bear fruit like patience, kindness, love. That's why we're in this whole thing. This is your destiny. I've prepared good works in advance that you would walk in them. And you will, by my grace, you will. We have fears, maybe, as Christians, that our lives won't be proved very fruitful, that we'll have a meager legacy. But no, this isn't about you. You will have a full and rich legacy because Jesus chose you and appointed you to go bear fruit, which means when you pray for that fruit, you'll get it. You'll get it every time. That's what he says. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And not just virtues of Christ in our own character, but our influence on others, how we disciple others. In fact, look at verse 16. We stopped short there. We stopped in 15. Verse 16, John applies this concept, this truth. Now, this opens up a can of worms, verse 16, but we can't go there. We'll, we'll go there next week. Uh, if anyone sees his brother or sister com committing a sin not leading to death, I know, like, James, I thought all sin leads to death. Just hold that thought. Okay, we'll hit this next week. Whatever that sin is, he says, he shall ask and God will give him life. No ifs, ands, or buts. He will pray for that straying brother or sister, and God will restore them. Again, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, 
but he will. Why do we know that with such confidence? Because we know what God's will is for every brother and sister in Christ. Full and total perfection. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he was, had all authority to lay down his life, and we know that because he even dictated the very last breath he had. When he gave his last breath, do you, know, do you remember what John says he said in his last yelp from the cross? What was it? Somebody say it. It is finished. It is finished. Amen. If that means the good work God has begun in each one of us will be completed. And so your prayers are not in vain. It is finished. What he's begun, he will complete because he's already finished it at the cross. And the resurrection was the Father saying amen to the prayer of the Son and his offering up of himself for you and for me. Amen means let it be done. Guys, it is. It's unfolding as we speak. It is a matter of eternal assurance. It is a matter of our destiny. And so, what does your prayer life look like? Do you pray the revealed will of God? God, give my small group holiness. Give it greater intimacy with you and one another. Lord, give the saints that I'm connected with, give them a greater love for you and a greater obedience and a zeal. God loves to answer those prayers, and he does every single time. Now, we still have limited knowledge. Right? And sometimes we pray for people, we don't know the nature of their sin, we don't know the nature of their hearts, but when we pray for a brother or sister to grow in obedience, when we pray that we would have fruit, God always honors that prayer. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, James, if we're just supposed to pray what God's already willed, aren't we just lip-syncing to a pre-recorded track of God's eternal plan? You know, it's the old, like, why pray God's going to do what he's going to do anyway kind of line, right? Which is an understandable sort of source of doubt and sort of questioning, why should I pray then? Like, it's just faded, it seems. But it's not fatalism. You see, God is designed to accomplish his purposes through your prayers. He will accomplish what he has set out to do because you will pray and he will answer. So flip the script. Instead of thinking your prayers as pointless because God's already going to do what he's going to do, think of your prayers as divinely powerful and efficacious to do exactly what you've asked to do because God wills to accomplish his purposes through your longings as your longings are conformed to his. And as you pray out for that lost child who doesn't know Jesus, as you pray out for uh, for healing, as you pray out for these desires, we know that God hears us. As you pray for the maturing of his church, for the, the expansion of his mission, for the glory of God in the world, for the joy of his people, all those prayers are heard and answered, maybe not in the ways we anticipate or expect. In fact, we rightly honor God when we expect an answer like that. James says, ask God for wisdom if you lack it, and he will give it without finding fault. But 
Don't ask it like one without faith. For if you ask without faith, that person is unstable, like the tossing of a wave back and forth, and they should expect nothing, is what James says. Because they do not honor God's promise. They don't honor God's revealed will. But as we, we know that we have, verse 15, what we ask, the request that we've asked for him, we know. And when we expect answers to prayers of God's revealed will, it is an act of faith that always honors God. When we expect what he has promised to give, that is an act of faith that honors God. And there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we long for God hasn't promised us. We should still pray for that. But when we expect what he has promised us, we honor him. That's not presumption. It's faith. Look at, again, look at going back to John 11 again, where Jesus says to the, to the Father in prayer, I knew you already heard me. Thank you for, he says, thank you for hearing me before the miracle takes place. He thanks God for the gift before it's given. That's how certain he is. <laughs> thank you, God, for... Oh, by the way, we should actually go ahead and finish that, shouldn't we? Hey, Lazarus, come on out. He's full assurance he was heard. That's the assurance we also have. In Jesus. And Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I do and even greater. Guys, the work we have before us, whether it's Eau Claire, it's here in Columbia, or the work that we partner with across the, across the country or across the globe, is a greater work than Jesus saw accomplished in, in Judea in the first century. We will see greater things through your prayers being answered. Prayer is divine power changing history through the hearts and cries of his people. I don't know about you, but this makes me want to pray a lot more, knowing that my prayers never wasted breath. It's always heard, and it's always answered. Would you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for your word and the encouragement it gives us, the confidence that we have that when we pray according to your will, you hear us. And if we know that you hear us, we know we have the requests we've asked for granted. Lord, I pray now for us as your people, make us faithful as prayers. We know that is your will, and we know you will do it. I thank you in advance, Lord that you will transform us to be more like your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.